Namaste to all of you and good night, good evening. And I'm going to continue now with the second part of our presentation of yoga in daily life. Before I start with that, I've been asked administratively to remind to the Shaktis that there is a program concerning the Mahashivaratri and that program lasts 21 days. So it actually starts Monday the 15th at 6 o'clock in the morning. So speak with Yogita, who was just wonderfully singing here and playing music, and speak and find out about these activities of the Shakti group, because if you are one day late, then you are going to be sorry that you cannot You say, oh, I wish I knew. So I hope that now you hear and you can tell to everybody else, this is an announcement for the Shaktis. The Viras also have some activities for the Mahashivaratri. Talk to the Viras, talk to Muktananda, talk to Ram, and find out about those activities as well. So this was administration. Now, let us continue. I started last time a series of presentations, a series of lectures, talking to you about yoga how to use yoga in the daily life. And from the very beginning, we saw that gymnastic yoga, monkey yoga, cannot really be used in the daily life. Exception made that if you are stretching and if you are fit, you feel good. That's also an application, but it's very minor. When I speak about yoga in daily life, I speak about the real yoga, the full yoga, the complete yoga, the integral yoga, I'm talking about yoga in which you can concentrate your mind, control your emotions and states of mind. I'm talking about yoga where you feel your chakras, can control the energy in the chakras, can produce certain effects. Therefore, this is full-on yoga. And that yoga has hundreds of applications in the daily life. I already made a presentation of a sort of a hypothetical day starting with waking up in the morning and being in the twilight zone between dream and wakefulness and doing the different aspects of the nidra yoga and so on and finishing with uh, going to your job and um, if you have, a, for example, a heavy physical job, a job where you have to make lots of physical effort, just developing your muladhara chakra and your manipura chakra. You have three years of demanding physical job, only two outcomes are possible. Either you are exhausted, tired, and you crash, or you have a huge muladhara, a huge manipura, and you are extremely fit. I remember some of my pupils, when I lived in Denmark, they had the job of distributing newspapers at 3 o'clock in the morning. They picked up the newspapers at 2 o'clock, and they were cycling throughout Copenhagen and running up and down hundreds of staircases in hundreds of buildings, distributing newspapers to every door. Many people declared themselves crushed by this job. And many people said, I have never been in better physical shape than when I'm doing this job. I can run the marathon, you know, I'm, I'm so fit. Every night I'm running 20 kilometers up and down the stairs of buildings. I'm one of the fittest persons in town. So we saw from describing the ideal day, we saw that it's a matter of attitude. First of all, generally, 
there is a dictum which says, when there are obstacles, the losers see only problems and the winners see only challenges. That's a difference of attitude. Like whatever the daily life throws at you, you can take it like a victim and say, oh, why me? Uh, and then you are a loser, you will give up. Or you can simply take, pick up the gauntlet, pick up the glove, and take up the challenge and say, okay, since God gave me a physical job for the next three years, I'm going to become the person with the best muscles and the best fitness in town. It's a matter of how you take it. So the first possibility or the first level, the first matter of attitude is if you complain or if you raise to the challenge. And the second thing which we saw already is this, that if you are a seeker, if you are looking for every opportunity to do something, to explore something, to feel something, to activate a chakra, to go deeper, to grow up, to develop, then automatically you will seek yoga in daily life. The whole daily life becomes a yoga. And if you are a person, as I said last time, who is just waiting for the end of the yoga session to re-become profane, to start talking again about the dress with the polka dots on it, then you are not really interested to bring yoga in daily life. Yoga is an accident in your life and you are possessed by the Svadhisthana or Manipura of the daily life. The real seeker <clears throat> is trying, on the contrary, to be in a mildly, in a sweet way, obsessed with yoga, obsessed with the chakras, obsessed with energy, obsessed with discovering new things, obsessed with learning, achieving new things. You always... Um, want to use the opportunities. Sometimes, in a gathering like this, we want to keep people using the opportunities. Yogita is coming, she is playing bhajan and kirtan, and those of you who want are playing and singing, are singing at least with her. But if there would be, like in previous years, we didn't do that, then people would be sitting and spinning their thumbs. Like, it's true that Swami Vivekananda has a pathetic time management, and he is often late. So, when Swami is late, are you just going to spin your thumbs? No. Like, I know many of my friends from yoga from the early days, they would be here 20 minutes and Swami doesn't show up, they would do something. Like, there is an interesting woman, I can ask her, do you want to make a circuit energy with me? We can make a meditation holding hands. Like, let's use the 20 minutes until Swami Vivekananda is being late. That's because I always want to do something. I'm a seeker. I don't want to waste my life. I'm constantly wanting to do something. If, if I'm dabbling in yoga, sure. But if I invested everything I have in yoga, then I know that probably I shall not have children. I know that probably I shall not have wealth and a retirement plan. I know that probably I shall not have social glory or a Nobel Prize in physics. And therefore, I have to truly focus on my choice. Like if I made a choice, then I'm staying. I put everything into that choice. I'm not trying to ride onto horses 
or sail into boats or serve to masters. If I really am a yogi and that's what I do, all my life is a yoga. I'm constantly obsessed by it. I am dwelling into it constantly. And if I have 20 minutes free, I'm going to do something which will serve my dream, which will serve my purpose. This brings us actually to, uh, we're speaking about going to shows, parties, viewing, TV, cinema, reading books. These were the last things which we commented in the last session. And the next point here on my list of things that one wants to do in the daily life are different couple techniques. Fortunately, Agama has this very rich lore concerning Tantra. We give you a lot of Tantric teachings in the Tantra workshops and other, in Vira groups, Shakti groups and others. And you can always do something. You can always do a transfiguration, a circuit of energy, a meditation on polarity. There are a couple techniques based on polarization of energy. No, like I have a lot of yang energy and because of this I am a bit harsh and raw and no, like masculine, perhaps not in the nicest way. And you have a lot of feminine energy and you are receptive, sensitive, vulnerable. Shouldn't we exchange? Like let's hold hands and I'm going to give you my masculine energy and you give me your feminine energy. It's balanced without even making love. We can balance our energies even without needing to go into tantric sex. Just 20 minutes of meditating and holding hands. Therefore, one such view of the couple techniques is polarization techniques. Polarity. No? Some people may be afraid of the polarity. I remember a friend of mine had a pupil, a disciple, and this man was a Cancerian in astrology. And because he was a man born in the astrological sign of the Cancer, somehow he considered himself very lunar a very lunar person. And this man, after he studied Yoga Tantra for a couple of years, he developed some idiosyncrasies. He developed some peculiarities. For example, he never slept in the bed with a woman. He simply said, if I sleep with a woman in bed, I absorb her feminine energy in my aura when we sleep, and I'm becoming more yin. And I'm already too yin for a man, and therefore one of my disciplines is I sleep alone. I will have to do my Hatha Yoga, I will have to eat Oshava diet, rice diet, I will have to do what I do. I cannot carry a woman on my shoulders. I don't have enough Yang energy for that. It's as simple as that. So polarization, when you think about polarity, you can think in various ways, in positive ways, in negative ways, but it's a factor. It's a factor which you take into account. In the polarization of energy, there exists a technique, I think one of my friends in my youth, he was the most uh, obsessed, but again, not in a pathological way, obsessed in a real constructive spiritual way. He was the most obsessed man that I have seen with the famous techniques, which here in Tantra, we call them circuits of energy, energy circuits, or the famous identification technique. That man wrote a book 
about identification techniques, a whole book about his experience. Like that man would never lose the opportunity with being with somebody in a group. And if there was no activity, if there was no something, you would say, let's do an identification. Let's do immediately a circuit of energy. You know, like if there are 15 minutes, let's use them. Let's do an interesting technique. Identification techniques, as I say, a whole book can be written about them. And there are so many elements of the identification about polarity and about, there are so many extensions to it. The, this polarization couple techniques, they can refer to bioenergetic healing. I remember this friend of mine once visited me at the time when I was living in Denmark. And while I was in Denmark, one of my disciples, one of my pupils in Denmark, was a Virgo woman that had a colossal Muladhara chakra, like she had a real big vitality. This friend of mine that I'm talking about, he was a fiery, airy person, and his eternal problem during his whole life was that he did not have a big Muladhara enough, and he wished he had a bigger Muladhara. So as soon as he saw this woman... He asked her, isn't it true that you have too much vitality and theoretically you should do 150 Udiana Bandhas every day? Yes. He said, wouldn't you like rather to give me directly some of your vitality? Like, I'm like a mosquito, like a vampire. I would take some vitality from you. But for you it's okay because you cannot do 150 Udiana Bandhas per day anyway. And if that energy stays in your low chakras... It's going to plague you. You are going to be paranoid, greedy, whatever, you know. So he made a circuit with her, like in Paschimottanasana, foot to foot, sitting in front of each other and putting the feet, the soles of the feet to each other. Like, give me energy through your legs. Let's make a circuit of energy through the legs. Holding hands and touching feet. If you do it in Paschimottanasana, you'll have to bend too much forward. So they did it with the legs apart, like this, separating the legs but still touching foot to foot. Like, you have to be creative. This man was not willing to waste a minute. He didn't want to let the life pass him by. He always wanted to do something, to achieve something. He had a program for the last 10 years. I have a small muladhara, and I constantly want to be with women that have a big muladhara, and I constantly want to improve my muladhara. He is very vital, very healthy, he's in excellent shape, like this man had the sweet obsession, I want to fix my muladhara. He's pretty good today. He is one year older than I am. He's in excellent shape because he always has been taking care of these kinds of things and he was always looking for solutions. That's why I'm saying you have to be creative. You have to really want to do things. For some people, yoga, occultism, energies, nadis. Do you anticipate the emotion which the person will experience? Like, are you able to take an email or a letter and to read it and read it and try to feel with anticipation what energetic effect will this have on the person? Because what's happening is that when you write, when you send a telepathic message and associated with a physical one or not, it's like you are sending a ball of energy. The clairvoyants in the, in the Theosophical House, Miss Annie Besant and Charles W. Leadbitter, Leadbitter and the others, 
they have a book actually which is called Thought Forms, if I remember correctly, 100-year-old book, in which they simply say when you send to somebody a thought of love, imagine that there is like a cannonball with wings of a dove, which simply flies through the astral world and goes, boom, into the aura of the other person. So actually every time when you send a thought, when you send a message, there is an exchange of energy. And if you don't pay attention, your message might contain the wrong energy. Your message might not be focused enough. For example, when talking in the phone. I remember the very same friend of mine that I was talking to you about. He had a girlfriend who was 300 kilometers away. And he had with her a totally platonic relationship. Like the girl was 16 years old. And she was still a virgin. So he loved her from his heart. And I really learned something from this man. It was difficult in those days. In communism, 30 years ago, phoning in another city, it was almost at the limit of the technology in those days. It's not like today that you have a mobile telephone and phone from Mount Everest to your mom who is in Atacama in Chile or something. It's like... It's not, it was much more difficult. So this man was preparing to phone to his beloved. They had a deal that he was going to phone to her at 8 o'clock. And before phoning to her, he did 12 Agnisara Dautis. <laughs> he did, and his Anahata Chakra was like... <laughs> no? And in the moment when his Anahata Chakra was like this, then he picked up the phone and phoned. And after they spoke for 30 seconds... There was already silence. And he could tell her, do you feel how I'm thinking of you? Do you think the energy which I'm sending to you? Can you feel what chakra am I'm thinking now at you? And this girl was so receptive, she could feel everything. But also because he was not just making a pathetic lover's phone call. He was making a yogi's phone call. He was not just improvising. He was planning it. He was using his knowledge of yoga. He, was, he wanted to transmit love to his girlfriend so that she will organically feel it like a fist in her chest. You know, like, you know, I can feel your love organically. He did it. How many people who have studied Tantra and Yoga with Agama do that when they write a letter, when they write an email, when they make a phone call, which is significant, you know, to kind of focus on these things. Telepathic communication when going to sleep. Let's say you are here and your boyfriend or girlfriend is in Paris. Wouldn't it be nice to meet in your dreams? If you have learned about yoga nidra, wouldn't it be nice that you actually use it for something? So as you fall asleep, of course you keep into account the six hour difference of time zone. So you go to bed really late and your boyfriend or girlfriend goes to bed really early. So they the time zones almost fit. And as you fall asleep, put, you put the face of your beloved like Shambhavi Mudra right here and you think, I'm going, to vi- I'm going to dream Walter tonight. I'm going to dream Walter tonight. I want, I'm asking my subconscious mind to put me in connection with Walter tonight. And I fall asleep thinking that. And then in the night, it's 90% sure I'll have a dream with Walter together. Isn't that Like you learned about Yoga Nidra. How many of you are obsessed with it and really want to use it? 
for something. To apply it in daily life. It's an instrument. It's a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful instrument. And of course, when we mention couple techniques, either of, tele- of energy transmission or of telepathic communication, we cannot forget one of the things which saves the day for many, many people in our school. Sexual, tantric techniques. That simply says, even lovemaking, if you do it right, is a technique. It produces sublimation of energy. It produces transmutation of the raw sexual substance. And you are helping yourself with that. You make love for two hours. You make love for just one hour, for 45 minutes. You already can feel a major effect if you did not explode your energy, if you did not consume your ojas, and you are focusing on Ajna Chakra, you're focusing on Anahata Chakra, you're focusing on Vishuddha Chakra, on whatever you're focusing, and you are therefore doing something. Today, I didn't do Hatha Yoga, but I did a little bit of Tantric Yoga. It's like I did something at least. I did 45 minutes of something. The day has not passed without I doing anything. Going to bed, just as a last moment of the day, what can you do from the standpoint of yoga? Well, you could do a consecration of your sleep. I, for example, encountered people, especially men, who would say, Swami, periodically, every two weeks, every three weeks, I would have a wet dream. My body produces a lot of sperm, and I cannot absorb it. I'm practicing continence in my daily life, But in the sleep, it hits me. Sometimes I just have wet dreams. What to do? So I simply said, why don't you consecrate your night? Simply say, whatever is going to happen this night, without my approval and without my contribution, I'm offering it to Shiva. Because it's my body, it's my life, and it's my right, therefore, to dispose of it. So I'm offering it to Shiva. So if some demon is coming and making me ejaculate in my dreams, the energy will not go to the demon. The energy will go to Shiva. And the demon will realize like, oops, this guy was sold out already. No? Therefore, it's very useful to consecrate your night. In the old days, remember the little nursery rhymes and Christian prayers. If I am to die tonight, I pray to my guardian angel that you take my soul and... I'm saying, what if I die tonight in my sleep? Then take my soul to God. I offer my soul and this night to God, to my guardian angel. See, even in primitive spiritual practices, like a simple nursery rhyme prayer from regular Christianity, the idea is there. Since I cannot control what's happening in the night, why don't I consecrate it already? I can give it already and simply say, I have no control. I'm offering it to you, O God. So whatever is happening is yours. Practicing, of course, preparing for lucid dreaming. Focusing on Ajna Chakra, trying to fall asleep in Shavasana, trying to fall asleep with the thought that tonight I'm going to fly in my dreams and if I manage to fly in my dreams, then I will go and visit Rumi, wherever he is in the astral or causal spheres, and so on and so forth. Training for lucid dreaming. We do teach Nidra Yoga very clearly and we initiate people practically. 
And if after three years we ask people, a thousand nights have passed since you learned Yoga Nidra, how many of these one thousand nights do you actually tried as just an act of intention or of will to wake up in the dreams, to program yourself that you are going to have at least one lucid dream in the night which comes? Many people say, Swami, the truth is, I did it for about 15 days after I heard the lecture on Nidra Yoga, and then somehow I got busy with a lot of things in the life, and I kind of forgot. Same thing is happening with the Laya Yoga, with the Tantric Vipassana, with all sorts of things. Like many people learn a lot of things, and then they don't do them. I have teachers in the school have been teaching levels like the 7th, 8th level. People have done 500 hours of yoga. And these teachers told me, it's surprising, half of you, half of the class never did one Vamana Dauti, which we teach in the second week of the course, for God's sake. Like, aren't you at least curious to try 10 times Vamana Dauti? Like, why do we teach it? Just because I want to burn some paper and give it to you, like under the form of course papers, like, you realize that if that technique is given there, it is for something. This man that I told you that was accumulating Muladhara vitality and who is in excellent shape, I met him a year ago when I was in my country, when I visited my parents in Romania. And when I met with him, he told me, you know what, dear friend, he said, after a lifetime of doing things, of doing yoga and teaching yoga, he is a yoga teacher, he simply said, I can tell you one of the most valuable techniques of all of yoga is Vamana Dauti. He said, Vamana Dauti has saved me and kept me healthy till the age of 53. And we have people who have learned it a year ago and they haven't tried it yet. This, this shows how much do we have the spirit to experiment, to play with these things. Do we want to bring yoga in our daily lives? Or not. Positive self-suggestion. When you are about to fall asleep, your subconscious mind opens. And that's when you could say, every day and every way I feel better and better. Yes, every hundred times. Say, repeat it a hundred times. Every day and every way I feel better and better. Yes. Then you complain tomorrow morning, my spine is fucked. I need some chiropractic. Did you repeat every night before going to bed and every morning when waking up, every day and every way my spine is better and better for six months to see what's happening? You, have, you learn about the power of self-suggestion and the power of the mind to create things. It has to be used, actually. You have to be obsessed with these things and actually do them. I have a list, and I don't know if I'll manage to finish it tonight, but we have a list. Where is that clock? Oh, they moved it. Okay. So I have a list. I'm just guiding myself by the clock. I have a list of many, many special, like now I'm not going to speak about the day from the morning till going to bed and going to shows, cinemas, or uh, having a relationship with your partner and practicing sexual tantra or going to bed and doing self-suggestion. Now there are more peculiar events happening in life, like things which don't happen every day, but which might happen once a year, or once every three years, or something, and which are things where you can do special things. 
the first place, the first thing which I have on my list here is visiting archaeological sites. How many of you have not been to Istanbul to visit the Hagia Sophia, or you have been to, I don't know what, to the holy city in Jerusalem to visit the tomb of Jesus, or you have been to the catacombs of Rome, or some places like this? It's very interesting to visit old places, because in those old places there is an energy. Like many tourists going to Rome, they visit the Colosseum. But are you aware of the fact that in the Colosseum, approximately 35,000 Christians have been martyrized, crucified, burned alive, thrown to the lions, thrown to the gladiators? Like there was a bloodbath in the Colosseum. Not to mention that gladiators were killing each other for the delicious, for the pleasure of the Roman mob, of the idiots, of the bastards from that mob who somehow loved it. They were ready to pay money to see people killing each other. So the Colosseum has a horrible energy into it. So when you go to the Colosseum, for example, you might want to make a projection back in time. Close your eyes. Imagine that your Vishuddha Chakra is opening and is like a time machine and you start rewinding the Akasha like a videotape and you go back 2,000 years to see what happened in the Colosseum. What energy is there? The Colosseum is not just a piece of architecture. It's a place of torture. It's a place where a lot of injustice and horrible things have been done. So we visited, but how do we visit it? A great metaphysician of the 20th century, the Frenchman René Guénon, René Guénon said it very clearly. He said, if you go into archaeological sites, like you are visiting the tombs of the pharaohs from Egypt, the energy in those tombs and in those places is very often very bad because there were a lot of demonic protections involved. There were a lot of inferior things happening, like when they buried the pharaoh, they killed 50 slaves and they put them in the, near the sarcophagus of the pharaoh to serve him in the afterlife. That's not very nice when you are a slave. When you are the pharaoh, maybe that's nice. But when you are the slave, they were not very happy that they had to die together with the pharaoh to serve him in the afterlife. So in those tombs, there is a lot of crazy energy. Plus that the magicians of Egypt... They put protection on those tombs and they said whoever will come and try to steal the golden mask of Tutankhamun, may he die of plague. So they called on some demons to defend those tombs. And you are going there, the demons are still there because they have been magically invoked and they are still roaming. They have promised to fulfill a mission. Now they cannot give the plague to 40,000 people who enter in the pyramid of Cheops every day but they give a 40,000th part of a plague to each and every one of them. Then they go home, they become three times more alcoholic. They become three times more compulsive and dark and suicidal because they visited Tutankhamun's tomb like idiots, like ignorance, not knowing anything what's what. Blind, blind through Gaza, blind through the incomprehensible world. Dust, chaff in the wind. That's why I'm saying visiting archaeological sites, there are sometimes many negative energies that you want to guard yourself from, 
And there are also some positive energies. Like I visit Mount Tavor in Israel, where Jesus went up on that mountain and transfigured, turned into light, and John and Peter and Thomas were with him, and they fell to the ground, because there suddenly Jesus pulled off the mask a little bit, and he showed who he really was. That's a blessed spot on the face of this earth. A place where Jesus did this, it's marked. There is a church on that place right now, on that mountain. It's beautiful to visit Mount Tavor, to step on the place where, or the Mount of Olives, which is a bit more difficult because it's in the Palestinian part of Jerusalem, where Jesus is said to have raised to heaven. After 40 days from resurrection, he said, enough is enough. I showed you the resurrection and everything. Now it's time for me to go to God. And then he did like this and turned into rainbow. No? What a place is that? What a memory that place has. What if you try to do some yama or identification with that moment? Spin the akasha, rewind the tape of akasha, and imagine it's happening right now. I'm here, Jesus is here. This is the moment when Jesus is ascending to heaven. That's an experience. That's not tourism anymore. Then your tourism becomes something spiritual. Because wherever you go, you are ready to use. Remember, archaeological sites... Sometimes they can be very uplifting. Sometimes they contain a lot of negative energies, inferior energies, and you have to know what is what. Moreover, René Guénon said, even places which were good once upon a time, because they have not been used, they grew stale. Like imagine that I have a barrel of water, and it's the best water in the world, the most pure water in the world, and then I let it stay for 2,500 years. Then somebody comes and wants to drink from it. Hey, that water is not fresh anymore. That water definitely has bacteria, microorganisms, something in it after 2,500 years. It's the same with the archaeological sites. People go to uh, Angkor Wat, no, because we are in Thailand. Hey, Angkor Wat functioned 2,000 years ago. It's not active anymore. Those are ruins. Some of the energy in those ruins went stale. It's poisonous. It was not originally, but it became slowly by decay, by time. It's not all good, just say, but this was a temple. Yeah, it was a temple and it didn't work for 2,000 years. So how is the energy now? The energy is not the same which used to be 2,000 years ago. So there are many interesting things with archaeological sites. I, for one, liked very much this one. I want to feel the time. Just try to view a Hollywood movie from the 1960s, 1950s, 1940s. You are going to see it's like a travel in time. It's, they are so different. People behave so different. The values, the language, everything is so different that if you view some of these movies, it's almost like a travel in time. Your Vishuddha starts attuning to a different time. And you can have very interesting experiences from just seeing vintage movies and others and others in this way. Visiting places of living cult. Like you go and visit Hagia Sophia, who today is a mosque or the Blue Mosque in Istanbul or something. That's a living place. The Muslims are coming two times per day and Friday especially and they are praying in it. It's a living place of cult. 
you cannot go without with your hands, with your shoulders naked. You have to have, I don't know, decent clothing and so on. You enter there with shoes, with slippers on your feet. It's a living place. What's the energy of it? Like, if you go like a tourist, you just look and say, look at that crystal lamp. It's glorious. Oh my God, and this carpet is a Persian carpet, and it must be 50 meters by 50 meters. Imagine how many people should have weaved at this carpet, and imagine what it costs. You're just going there to masturbate. No? The problem of the blue mosque is not how much the carpet costed, or how beautiful the chandelier is. That's a place where people pray to Allah every day. What's the energy of that place? How do they pray? Do they pray from Anahata? Do they pray from Manipura? Do they pray from Vishuddha? Do they pray from which chakra? What's the dominant energy there? No, you see images from Mecca, and you see, oh my goodness, what a number of people. Shut up. Focus. Feel What's happening when a million people go to Mecca and they pray synchronized? You've seen these incredible images when a million people at the same second, all of them go like this and so on. What does that do? Because people like to do this on stadiums. You know, when Barcelona is about to score, 50,000 idiots on a row, they go like, and they make a wave. Why? Because that produces a mood and an energy. No? Imagine if 50,000 idiots drunk in a football match do that. What's happening when a million do it in Mecca? Makes a difference. So if you go to a living place, try to find the energy. There are, I remember when I was in Copenhagen, there was a Russian Orthodox church on one of the streets there. And suddenly, just a couple of years before I left, there was a rumor in town, and I've seen it with my own eyes. The icon of Virgin Mary which was under glass, it started shedding tears. I've seen it with my own eyes, and this is a well-known thing in Christianity, both Orthodox and Catholic, that sometimes Virgin Mary paintings or statues, they start shedding tears. Sometimes the tears are made of myrrh, they are white and transparent, and sometimes they are of blood. And science doesn't have an explanation for this, and it's a very, very weird thing, and of course everybody says they must be cheating. I know those people. Those people wouldn't be cheating in the name of anything because they would think that they go to hell if they are cheating. They are very pious religious people. And suddenly the painting of Virgin Mary through the glass, it was like sweating through the glass. There appeared in just one place droplets and they were flowing like this. And people were collecting it in cotton pads. And they are using it for incurable wounds and for leprosy and for all sorts, for people who got blind and they put it on their eyes and so on, like it was producing miracles. So that's a place of living place. You, you might want to go in a place where there is such a thing. No? I've seen recently in television the, some photos which I had since long time. They processed the statue, the, the relics, of Padre Pio. Padre Pio died in 1964 or something like this, and his body is unrotten. He looks like he died yesterday. It's true that the Catholic Church applies a little bit of makeup on the face, it puts a bit of wax. But if you try to put some wax on your grandmother and keep her for 50 years, she will still turn into a corpse and be eaten by the worms and mummify. Padre Pio is not. 
there are there is a whole book called the incorruptibles written by a woman called Joanna Cruz or something like this who presents the catholic the relics from the catholic world like it's not the only body that of padre pio there are hundreds of them unrotten inexplicably of course the christians say their body is incorruptible because they became very pure by practicing prayer a lot and when they died even the corruption didn't have power over their body it's a miracle from god showing the survival of these saints for the believers but seeing 1 2 5 10 such bodies it will give you a lot of faith it will show that modern science doesn't know almost anything about the human body and what's happening after death and that's why you go to places of cult try to get something out of it you don't go to samarkand or to tehran just to see the million mirror mosque and to take photos and put them on instagram that's stupid tourism you go there to feel the chakras you go there to have a state of consciousness like if you go to vatican you try to sit down in the middle of the vatican and pray sit in vajrasana so they don't think that you are doing the lotus pose and you are some you know heretic hindu or something sit on your knees like a japanese and for half an hour sit in the vatican and meditate and see is it like uh, Dan Brown says it that is just a bunch of uh, satanists in Vatican or actually do I feel my anahata my vishuddha my ajna my sahasrara what in that place is there a spiritual energy there or not so visiting places of living cult can give you a lot of experiences now i visited at least a couple of times <coughs> just to give an example the dervish dancers from turkey went to istanbul first thing i wanted to know if the schools of rumi still exist if people are still doing prayer and my turkish friends showed me they took me there i went to the dargas i participated for 2 hours at one of their ceremonies while they were singing and praying and playing music i concentrated i did some yama i tried to feel the energy in the hall to see what's happening when 20 men spin like dervishes and they pray to god non-stop while they spin is that just an illusion or is there actually an activation of a chakra and it gives a certain energy i want therefore to instill this idea that you have to be an experimentator and a spiritual experimentator forget about the paintings on the walls and things like this and if you want to look at the paintings look like this there is a famous painting in the louvre museum which is of course mona lisa the italians call her gioconda no why did so many men commit suicide in front of the mona lisa you know that people committed suicide until the police made it impossible almost that men were coming staring staring coming tomorrow staring staring coming tomorrow staring and drooling and drooling and drooling and eventually they came with a gun and blew their brains out of love and desperation that they can't have mona lisa that it's only a painting and that was the woman of their dreams what is so special about mona lisa why didn't they blow off their brains in front of other there are women paintings of women which are naked where you can see ass boobs stuff why didn't they blow their brains in front of those why mona lisa 
There must be something. It's not a coincidence that people commit suicide in front of the Mona Lisa. I'm not saying it's necessarily a negative energy. I'm simply saying that it produces an effect and it cannot be... So even at the paintings, if you go to see them, what frequency is in those paintings? Are they truly coming from Vishuddha Chakra? Like if you take Andy Warhol's painting of a Coca-Cola can, does it activate your Vishuddha Chakra? I can spare you the effort. It doesn't. It's crap. Most of the modern art, it's crap. The Nazis make whole exhibitions of traditional art and modern art, and they were making fun of it. And people today, they condemn them. They say, what a bunch of squareheads. They didn't understand progress and modernism. The truth is that much of that modern art was garbage. And somebody has to say it, exactly like with the emperor, that only a child had the courage to say, the emperor is butt naked. The emperor has no clothes. You know, that's the truth. If you would be doing some yama on modern painting, you would find maybe one in a hundred which has some real art in it that you can compare to Michelangelo or Da Vinci or Raphael or Praxiteles in ancient Greece or something like this, you know? There is not that frequency. That frequency is clear for somebody who does yoga. This thing has aesthetic. I feel it in my Vishuddha clearly. This thing is just a gimmick. It's just an exercise in originality, but it's not a real art. It's not transcendental. It doesn't bring something from the world of aesthetics. Being part of spiritual groups. At the same time when I was in the Dargah of the Sufis, one of our Turkish friends asked me, you are a man, it's easy for you to go into a Sufi group. I know a couple of Sufi groups. I have somebody and we can introduce. We can say you are a teacher of yoga, a master of yoga from India or whatever, they will accept you. Some of them are very open. So I have been with the Sufis for one night in a private house. In the Muslim world, even by the law in Turkey, the Sufis are forbidden. The police can come and arrest them. So they are meeting privately in private homes. They rent, they have headquarters, and which the police semi-knows about them, and they don't enforce that law. But by the law, the Sufis are, they could be arrested by the police. I went with them in that house. I spent with them two, three hours. I did all the prayers with them. They were dancing and shouting and doing this Allah who and Allah who and Allah who. I did it with them. I have been there with them doing their practices and honestly praying to God under the form of Allah, under the formalism in which Muhammad saw it, just because I was curious to feel that energy. I was wanting to be part of their group. I felt, for example, I've seen, I've been in this Turkish group and I've seen documentaries made by Arnaud de Jardin in 1962 in Afghanistan. I was fascinated with the masculinity of some of those men. Not macho, not testosterone, not gang type of masculinity, a spiritual masculinity, refined man who could have the self-discipline every night to wake up at midnight and make 15 minutes of prayer to Allah, not wanting to sleep drunk after a party. Just getting up at midnight and praying to God for 30 years, non-stop, every day. No, like very disciplined spiritual people, very pure, living the life by a very clear set of rules, 
which were set by their religion, and being very devoted, very devoted. Some of those people go in trance, they poke metallic objects through their cheeks, through their body, and they don't bleed, and they don't feel the pain. Like, they really go into states of trance, and you can see that that trance is not a joke. Like, you can sometimes see formidable, scary things there, and they do it all in the name of God. Since years, I want to go to Taipusham, to the festivals in Kuala Lumpur, where in, the, in January and February, they are doing this Skanda festival, and I'm missing it every year, because it's the beginning of the season here in Kopangan, and I'm very, very busy every year. Go to the Taipusham festival in Kuala Lumpur, to the Batu Caves, or whatever they are called, and see people, hundreds of people, pierced with metallic objects, with this miraculously not bleeding, not feeling pain, not like to the limits of the physiology, and then they take out a finger, stick two of my fingers out of their cheek, and they just do like this, and there is not even a scar. There's not a drop of blood. Like you are complaining that you are not seeing paranormal phenomena, you are complaining that you are not seeing miracles. They happen all the time. It's just enough to go there and see for yourselves. But see, the karmic blockage is that you don't. And then you say, I have doubts. These guys from yoga, they talk too much and so on. Things are happening. So go to places of living cult and see what's happening. Experience. Be part of spiritual groups, as I said. No? Like join the Vira group. Join the Shakti group in Agama. See if in one year you get something out of it. What's happening to you? Another activity is meet the wise beings. This is the original Sanskrit meaning, the, the meaning of the Sanskrit word, satsang. Satsang originally means company of the wise. And uh, this is a big problem. Because even in Kopangan, I heard that we're having about five simultaneous satsangs happening every week. Which means that on this island there are about Five enlightened beings, five sages talking. It's an inflation, believe me. Something is smelling very bad about this thing. I remember a wonderful booklet, which I lost many years ago, written by Osho Rajneesh in his early years. And Osho Rajneesh said, in India there are now many people who say that they are uh, the disciples of Ramana Maharishi and this and that, and India is reeking with enlightened beings. This was Rajneesh talking in the 1970s. Yeah? And he says, suddenly I get to hear that we in India here were full of enlightened beings. He said, people, wake up. Because if there would be so many enlightened beings, in India would not be a country of misery. Swami Vivekananda, the great of India, 120 years ago, he said, give me a hundred enlightened disciples and I'm capable to change the living conditions on all the planet Earth. All. Just a hundred enlightened beings. Because a Buddha appears once and changes history. And then a Jesus has twelve enlightened disciples and they change history for two thousand years. If you'd have a hundred enlightened beings, would live in Shambhala already. would live in Shangri-La. would live in paradise. The tree is known by its fruits. So Rajneesh said, look at the India of the 1970s. It's a piece of garbage. He said, where are those pretended enlightened beings? Because if a Buddha walks the surface of the earth, 
that person changes a lot of things just by his mere presence. Where are those enlightened beings? No. Here in Kopangan, we seem to have the biggest density of enlightened beings per square meter on the face of this earth. You know? And, and things are the way they are. So that's why I'm saying be, be careful with this one because meeting the sages, satsang, has a little catch to it. The persons that you meet need to actually be wise beings. No? That's the little secret. You are meeting with all sorts of blah, blah, blahs and suddenly they are not enlightened beings and you wasted your evening. Yeah? Then it was better to watch a video with uh, Eckhart Tolle or something like this there. At least Eckhart Tolle is an enlightened teacher. You'd get something out of it. But otherwise, meet the wise beings. In India, there, are, there is a documentary made by Arnaud de Jardin again in the 1962-63, which is called Ashrams. It's made in French. I don't know how many of you have seen it. I don't, I've never seen it with English subtitles. And Arnaud de Jardin was a brilliant filmmaker and a spiritual seeker. And he showed some very wonderful images from Shivananda's ashram, from Swami Ramdas's ashram, from Mananda Mai's ashram, at the time when Mananda Mai was still alive and Shivananda was still alive. And uh, Arnaud Desjardins says in India, and this was before the hippie times, so it was when India was a little bit more in its uh, pristine form, before the tourism and the commercialism have gone there. And he said in India, there are people who are spiritual pilgrims and they go and they visit ashrams. And the first thing which people do when they visit an ashram, when they reach to an ashram, even before they take lunch or dinner, they say, when does Guruji give darshan? That means, when does the guru of this ashram show himself to the public? That's called darshan. Darshan means to see. So when can you see the guru? And that is exactly what satsang is. So people came to an ashram, and the most important thing in that ashram was meet the person through whom God channelized all this. Because that's the source of all the energy in that ashram. That's the heart of the ashram. That's the jivatman, for those of you who know more yoga, that's the jivatman of the ashram. That's the, you know, therefore... The company of the sages is very, very important. You go to a school, first of all you want to see who is giving that energy. If you like it, if you don't like it, if you have synergy, if you have compatibility, if you don't, this is where it goes. That's why Swami Shivananda says constantly, you are tormented by doubts, you are tormented by bad thoughts, you want to restart smoking, you want to do this, you want to not do that, seek the company of the wise. Stay in the company of Swami Shivananda and all your negative desires will diminish. Because in the company of such persons, there is a transmission. There is constantly something given. And you can see it with open eyes. Because there is a transmission. Something has materialized. That doesn't come from anywhere. It comes from something, comes from an energy, comes from a grace which is being given. That grace is not only that we can build the Shakti Hall. 
because none of us came here with investment or with suitcases of money. All this is grace. It's through grace. It's through you. It's for you. And therefore, the grace is not only that there is a straw-roofed hall. There is also another kind of grace which comes like this. No? And therefore, there are there is a very important point which all the gurus of India and of Tibet like go to the lamas, go to the gurus, go to the people that have the empowerment, the spiritual empowerment, and receive directly the things. This rabbit hole is deep. It can go much, much deeper. It is one of the reasons for which even the teachers in the school, they are helping you to organize yourselves and so on, because they say, oh, they are coming people to the satsang, and then all they can do is they lie down, and some of them even start falling asleep. You know, it's like, are you coming to the satsang to lie down and fall asleep? And better stay home. No? Like, that's not the right way. You don't go to a mosque or to a church and you start snoring in the middle of it. Then stay home and take a nap, and when you feel rested, then go to the church and to the mosque. In a certain way, an ashram is also a place of spirituality, it's a place of living spirituality. It's a place of living practice. No? And it has to be done in the right way. Another event that can happen in your life is meeting people that suffer. Most people avoid, like the devil avoids incense, they avoid to see people in pain or in agony. It's like, oh, I cannot. Why not? Buddha got enlightened because he saw people that suffer. So why don't you just open your eyes and look carefully to people that suffer? This will diverse, develop compassion. It will develop mercy. You will start crying. It will break your heart. <clears throat> it will develop kindness. It will open your Anahata Chakra. It's a splendid opportunity. I said in, uh, in another lecture that one of my pupils who did eight hours of horseman posture in Qigong in China, a man who really developed the great Manipura, he went to Mother Teresa for a month in Calcutta. And he chose the terminally ill department, not the children's department, but where they take care of the terminally ill. And this tough guy who had been doing martial arts in China, he told me in the moment when I stepped in that hall and I just looked like this, and my eye caught approximately ten Horrible scenes with people having worms in their wounds. And, you know, like people in the most terrible conditions you can imagine. People picked up from the sewer and brought there for first care and dying, basically. He said, I started shaking in all my body. And I just walked straight forward. And I didn't find the door. I found the broom closet. And I entered in the broom closet hiding like a chicken. And an old nurse was working there. She saw me. And she had probably seen it 20 times before. So she gently came and opened the door of the broom closet, tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, I know what you are going through. You are not the first one. Come, I will introduce you gently to this thing and so on. That man, when he came after a month in Calcutta, he was more changed than he had changed with me in two years. One month in Mother Teresa's place, because he was an Englishman with a big ambition and Manipura and so on, but when it came to Anahata, it was a city in China for him. 
And when he went to Mother Teresa, he saw what anahata really can be. Because if you don't have anahata, you break, you go crazy, you, you lose it, you go into an epileptic seizure, you know. You're like freaking out completely. This man had to stay there, and his anahata chakra opened in one month more than it opened in two years with yoga exercises. That's why I say meeting people that suffer is a great thing. Don't avoid it. It's going to break your heart, and precisely because it's going to break your heart, from that pain, something amazing is going to arise in your heart. Remember that pain, although not desirable, it's a way of growing up. Kahlil Gibran, in his, love, in his legendary quote about love, he has a two-page text about love, and Kahlil Gibran says clearly, love has laughter and it also has tears. And if you are one of those people who want to avoid the tears that come from love, you are superficial. He said, go, because you will never fully understand love. You will laugh, but not full on all your laughters. You will cry, but never 100% to the hilt, because you don't really understand what love is until you allow it to hurt you really badly. And from that hurt, a miracle emerges. So you have to be able to go through love. Love is not only laughter. It's also tears, and it's like the yin and yang of it. You can't have half of it without the other half of it. It will not be complete. That's why meeting people that suffer, attending people that suffer. I remember having speaking with one of my pupils who was Israeli, and she went to one of these Christian hostels from the Holy Land, from Israel, from Jerusalem. And she was in a bed. She walked through the desert. She had an accident. And then they took her to this non-monastery, to this nunnery. And they took care of her for three days. And then in the end, of course, they didn't charge her any money or anything. They just took care of her, gave her medicine, care, gave her a bed. When she recovered, she told them, thank you for helping me. And they bowed down to her and they said, no, 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 no. Thank you for allowing us to help you. Like, this is the real lesson. You know, you allowed us to see you in pain and suffering. We got so much out of this. There's so much out of helping somebody. That's why meeting people that suffer is a great spiritual exercise. And you should not run from it. Because in the beginning it scares you. It spooks you completely and the first, in, the first instinct is to run away. Okay, take 20 baht, take 200 baht and buy yourself some food and I'm turning my head and I don't want to see you because it's too horrible. If I continue looking at you, I'll start crying. Start! Do! That's exactly what you are supposed to do. Go into it. Experience your heart. The suffering of other people is an incredible lesson. It's an incredible lesson. What do you do with yoga when you have a disease? Sometimes, inevitably, you are going to be sick. Little sick or very sick. That's the time when your yoga has to kick in. Big time. That's exactly one of the things for which you have learned yoga. What do you do when you have a cold? Believe me, even in Kopangan, we have people, they say they come to yoga, we teach them a month of yoga, they come to the final ceremony and they say, Swami, 
this yoga has changed my life. It's amazing and so on. Next month when they are in the second level, they get a flu. What do they do? My valiant yogis. They run to the hospital and take antibiotica. No, it's like, do you really believe in yoga? Do you, like, did you believe in yoga as long as it's blue skies? But as soon as the first storm is coming, we're chickening out immediately. Where is disease is an excellent time to check your belief, your faith, your practice of yoga. You got a flu. Can you do yoga to make it disappear quickly? Epidemics of different kinds. No? Like, even I, being having been 11 years in this island, 13 years in this island, I've once had dengue. It's almost inevitable if you allow mosquitoes to bite you in the daytime, that sooner or later you'll get a dengue. So what did I do? Did I go to the hospital? Did I take any medicine? No. I just took papaya leaf juice and did yoga and pranayama and drank lots of liquids and stayed quiet and read a few spiritual books and used my mind. Yeah. I didn't have bleeding. I didn't have pains. I didn't have... It was one of the easiest manifestations of dengue that I've heard about because I did not panic. One of our pupils who was doing yoga six hours per day, a young man, British, after six months of yoga, he gets dengue. He goes to the hospital. Of course, the hospital cannot simply say, uh, if you would have read your Wikipedia, you would have found out that dengue has no prevention, no vaccine, and no cure. There's nothing you can do about dengue. It's as simple as that. The whole medical world acknowledges that. Well, if you go to the hospital and they find out you have dengue, they are going to give you antibiotica nevertheless. But antibiotica has zero effect on viruses and on dengue in particular. So they give you antibiotica only to not to say we haven't done anything. Oh yeah, we did something. We gave him penicillin. That's like you are rubbing a prosthetic leg. You know, you want to give massage to a plastic leg. No? But that's the, what's the effect of that? Nothing. No? So basically, it's the same. You go to the hospital, they give you... An, this guy went to the hospital, they pumped him full of antibiotica. Dengue was bad. It lasted for a long time. Then he went back to England, and then he sends us an email. And he says, as soon as I got to England, that's 26-year-old man, I discovered that I had chronic fatigue syndrome and neuron, neuromyalgia fibromyalgia, pain in my... No? Of course. Any homeopathic doctor could have said that if you try to suppress dengue with antibiotica, you are going to find not the devil, but the devil's dead. The devil's father, you know? It's like it's going to be multiplied. By suppressing it, it becomes even worse. So, when you have diseases, then you verify... Remember the English proverb which says a friend in need is a friend indeed. No? Like... Yoga, you verify your yoga when you have a problem. A disease is an excellent time for you to see where do you stand with this yoga. Epidemics, as I said, stomach problems, whatever it is. I can tell you a story which inspired me, and I was thinking like this anyway, but this gave me strength. With the same good friend of mine with whom I shared so many inspiring stories, one day he got hepatitis. Full-on hepatitis. His girlfriend had hepatitis and he didn't know. And then she got hepatitis and she was taken to the hospital. 
And the, the most basic symptoms of that form of hepatitis were that the stool becomes whitish in color, and your urine becomes very black in color, and a few other symptoms, which are classics. Like any doctor immediately diagnoses that. Of course, they make a blood test afterward to double verify. My friend, this good friend of mine, who was a good yogi, he suddenly got all the symptoms. His girlfriend got it a week ago. In six, seven days, he got it. She was still in the hospital. He got it. And then he goes to his yoga teacher. And he says, I don't want to go to the hospital. I don't want to take that stupid medication that they put in you. Because it is a well-known thing that people that have hepatitis and take medicine, then usually they develop a chronic hepatitis. They remain with a weakness in their liver for the rest of their life. There are sequels, there are consequences. Then you can't eat this for the next 20 years. You can't eat that, you can't drink alcohol. And if you do, then it becomes uh, jaundice and it becomes chronic hepatitis and cancer in the liver and God knows what. So this friend of mine, he went to his guru and he simply said, I don't believe in medicine. Medicine doesn't have a good solution for hepatitis. What should I do? And his guru looked at him and said, since you are so bold, he said, you could do something. But you need to do approximately 300 with the Anabandas and Naulis every day. Can you do that? This friend of mine is a Leo, the man with a big willpower. And he simply said, yes. I'll go. He went home and started doing Udhyana Banda and Nauli Kriya non-stop, basically. In less than 24 hours, his hepatitis was gone. He never had any sequel. He never had any consequence from it. Nothing negative. He didn't took pills. He just did 24 hours of non-stop Udhyana and Nauli. This is the disease is a gift. His disease was a gift even for me. I have learned a great lesson by seeing my good friend having hepatitis and what he did to come out of it. Therefore, disease is a test, is a beautiful test and it gives you the opportunity to test your metal. What are you made of? No, enough lip service. Now you've got a flu. What do you do? Also, another thing of life, being confronted with depression, laziness, fear attacks, negative emotions. These are all diseases of luxury. Remember that if people are born in Somalia, they don't suffer from depression. Because they first have to find food to survive for that day. So depression is a luxury for people who have house, car, food, clothes, and then they don't know what else to do and they get depressed. Depression in the language of yoga, it means that your energy lingers in Svadhisthana and Muladhara. If you would be born in a tribe of Africa and you had to pick up wood for the fire every day and you had to run hunting 20 kilometers per day, you wouldn't be depressed because all your energy would be in Manipura because you are making physical effort. But because you are sitting in front of a computer and on a couch in front of the television, and you don't do Udhyana Banda, you don't do headstand, you don't do Nauli, your energy lingers in Muladhara and Zvadistana, and then you say, I'm so depressed. 
What you need is a chili up your ass and a good kick in that ass. No, because it's all this is a stagnant energy type of syndrome. And thus, depression, laziness, negative emotions. You should really be parachuted in Ethiopia for a year and then see what kind of these expressions of these negative emotions did you feel. No, because you wouldn't feel them. And thus, yoga is really brilliant at dealing with all these luxuries of modern life. Like the yogis are stern and stoic, you know. If you come complaining, like I remember just by analogy, and it goes to another element which I'm not going to comment because I'm going to stop soon, is uh, one of my f- friends, let's say, in the old days, well, I'm not, I was not so friendly with this guy, but let's call him a friend by stretching the concept a little bit. His mother died. And the guy was suffering from a slight form of schizophrenia, and he was emotionally, pathologically attached to his mom, and he had a very unnatural and bizarre relationship with his mom. So, of course, when his mom passed away, like, he collapsed completely. And then he spoke with our common yoga teacher, who was a very manipuristic person, you know, And he said, come and help me, let's make a meditation, something. And in the moment when the teacher came through the door of this house, of his apartment, this guy looked at the guru with the eyes of a dog, of a crying puppy, and he was about to start crying. (laughs) Like, now the man who is going to comfort me has come. At which the guru, without even taking off his shoes, he looked at him, he saw the tendency, and he said, Eugene, are you an idiot or what? No, like he shouted at him and insulted him really bad. He, he injected his manipura in him like this. The guy, and the guy started laughing like a fool. And he said, if you take me like this, at which the teacher continued full on. How should I take you? Of course I'm taking you like this. Well, are you an idiot? Are you just self-pity and so on? That's all you can do when your mom has died instead of helping her and doing something. Like he immediately moved him on another chakra. No self-pity, no, (laughs) mama has died, you know, okay, go and hang yourself also, you know, it's like, are you an idiot, you know, don't you, did you not do yoga for two years, so that when your mom dies, you can do something for her, isn't this really the moment for which you have trained for two years, isn't it now that it's the emergency and you should kick in action completely, now you have time to look up your belly button and cry, is is this the time for self-pity? This is what I say. You can deal with depression. You can deal with negative thoughts. You can deal with laziness. Yoga is a wonderful instrument. And the yogis don't live in this self-pity. And uh, I don't know what to do. It's like, you do. You just don't want to do it, you know. Just, you know, everybody could make a list. Even our pupils from the fifth month of yoga could make a list of what you should do when you are in those miserable states. You don't even need a guru to tell you that. You know, it's kindergarten stuff in yoga that you can do some. You can accept to just slump and, uh, and so on. Or you can stand up to the challenge and simply say, first of all, 100 Udhyana Bandhas. You know, before I even think about what to do, I start an appetizer of 100 Udhyana Bandhas. You know, then I start making the list of what I'm going to do. You know, like stand up, rise your energy, move into a positive state of mind.
I'm going to leave uh, these strong ones with the death and other things for later because it's a longer subject and I won't have time here. Uh, let's mention exams. You have exams to pass. Many people hate exams because it's stress and it's a lot of pressure, but you could do something. It depends, of course, what kind of exam is. I had exams. I was shirking. I was a very, very bad student in the university because I had fallen in love with yoga and with tantra. And besides sleeping, all my days I was doing yoga and tantra. And there was no more time for the university. And I was in the most difficult technical university of Romania of those days. Like it was the top technical university. Like electronics was the top of the top. And they made us eat mathematics with a big spoon. Even in the fifth year in the master's degree, other people were studying all sorts of collateral studies. We were studying Fourier series and all sorts of things like this, like big time and so on. And it was impossible to learn in these conditions. So I was studying for my exams between one to five days, according to my evaluation. Like in the last minute, I was taking courses from somebody who had been to the courses, because I was not even attending the courses. So then I photocopied the courses from one of my diligent colleagues. Now, like, give me a copy of your courses. And then I was starting to study. And I studied like 24 hours, 48 hours, almost nonstop. I maybe slept four hours. I maybe ate something, usually not. I studied. Well, what did I need for study for an exam? First of all, I needed a lot of energy in Ajna Chakra. So you can imagine, I was studying two hours. Then I was doing Halasana, Garudasana, Pranayama on Ajna Chakra. Then after 25 minutes when I was feeling full of energy, study again. No coffee, no stimulants, no uh, Ritalin, no uh, lecithin, no all sorts of funny drugs or something like this. Just yoga and study. And more yoga and more study. So exams are an excellent opportunity to practice yoga. Because you actually need it, and it helps you, and it gives you exactly what you need. It might be an exam where you don't need Ajna Chakra. There might be some exams where you need something else. Depending on the nature of the exam, I just gave an example. Creativity. It is a classical image that you see the writer who tries to write his novel, his lifetime novel, and he puts a paper in the typewriter... And he starts, and then after three lines, he takes it and he says, damn it. And he throws it to the garbage. And then you see a pile of papers. Like the, the writer or the painter or whatever other artist, a musical composer, they simply don't have the bloody inspiration. The creativity doesn't come. It's like, I don't know, I'm stressed out. I had a bad sexual experience this morning. I have acid in my stomach. I don't know really what happened. But right now I cannot write at my book. And you see Hollywood movies where there is a writer who didn't write anything for the last 20 years. No, like lost inspiration, lost creativity. But yoga says that creativity is a state which is characterized by two things. One, arousing of Vishuddha Chakra strongly. Two, the perfect balance of the two brain hemispheres. So if you manage to balance your brain hemispheres... What's the best exercise which most of you know for balancing the brain hemispheres? The Laya Yoga meditation with mantras and generally the mantra meditations is one of them. And the alternative breathing, 
Nadishodana Pranayama, the second one of them. So it's possible for you, if you have no creativity, that you do half an hour of yoga and you balance your brain hemispheres, you work on Vishuddha Chakra, and suddenly you are the one artist who is never short of creativity and inspiration. For you, that spring never dries up because you know how to produce that state in which creativity and inspiration is flowing. So, let's say one of you is a musician, a sculptor, a painter, an artist, a writer, a poet. Can you use yoga to increase your poetic things? Big time. Big time. You can make a huge difference, no? and nobody can understand how you are never running dry of inspiration and creativity and aesthetical sense and all those. Because many artists, they have a little bit of that and then they live a depraved sexual life, they lose their ojas, they drink too much, they consume drugs, they live a bohemian wild life with parties and cancan parties, French cancan parties all night. And then no wonder that five years later they have no more inspiration to paint something new or to write something new because they are running on batteries they are just consuming the gift which God or nature gave to them when they were young but they are never thinking about cleansing the system and recharging the batteries and connecting even more with more creativity with more aesthetical sense or something as a yogi if anyone of you here is an artist and an art creator you can perform miracles. I remember one of my friends, one of my teachers, actually more than a friend, she started a relationship with a man who had been a painter, and this man had been a painter and an artist, and then he got burned out. He became a journalist, and he started writing some journalistic, say, some columns in some newspapers, and he was pretty much down. By the time he was 55, he was finished. And then suddenly, he started doing yoga, then later kundalini yoga, sexual tantric yoga with this woman. In just six months passed, and this man could not contain himself. Such a creativity came on him that he consumed all his paintings in one night, and he started painting with shoe cream with shoe, this brown thing which you use for polishing shoes. He went down in the garden and dug some ochre from the garden and diluted it with water and started painting with ochre, with earth, with clay, directly, because it was night and he couldn't get paintings anywhere at that hour of the night, and he could not stop from painting. He painted about 50 statues, huge size. They in, in Romania, in the communist times, the guy got invited to put his paintings in Las Vegas. Somebody saw his paintings and he said, what the heck is this? Like We've never seen anything like this. You are invited, you have a ticket, we arrange with the communist authorities to give you a passport and a visa, come to this exhibition has to be in Las Vegas. An unknown person, because he did yoga and his kundalini woke up and he suddenly became creative like he never thought he could be. He was possessed by his need to paint, to to externalize, to show his art. And he was burned out for 20 years. For the last 20 years, he had not painted anything. And he just came with a bit of yoga and tantra. That's why, can yoga help you with creativity and art? Enormously. 
if you use it. But again, we're not talking about gymnastics. This guy did not do just some bending overs and stretching of his hamstring. That's not how he re-became a painter. He re-became a painter by working with the chakras, by working with the energy, with kundalini, and with these strong things. That's the yoga in the daily life which I want to bring to you. I want to inspire you in this series of three satsangs, last week, this week, and next week, because I didn't finish. I want to inspire you so that you can see that even if you are not motivated to become like Milarepa in this lifetime, like honestly, some of you will say, this Swami Vivekananda sometimes he raves like a fanatic. Like we can see that he talks to the top of the range, and this is like, he talks to us like we are all Ramakrishna in this room. But some of us, we are not. No, we are just normal people. Okay, I accept that. Then I want at least to convey this to you. Even if you don't want to be Ramakrishna or walk on water like Jesus in this body, in this lifetime. But there exists a yoga in the daily life. There are a hundred aspects in yoga that you can do every day, all the time, and improve your life. Either it's about that you are visiting a, a church or a temple or something, or that you are uh, visiting wise beings or part of spiritual groups or you have a suffering people or disease or you are confronted with your own negative emotions or you go to exams or you want to get more creativity. The things of life are teaching you a lot. Are teaching you a lot. We have many people in the school who complain, ah, Swami, I'm doing Tantra and I have problems with my partner and I have negative emotions. You should be grateful. Negative emotions are an excellent chance for you to demonstrate that you can get out of the negative emotions. And if you cannot, it doesn't mean you are wrong. It just means you are not good enough and you have to do even more. If 100 Udhyana Bandhas are not enough to take you out of a negative emotion, then maybe 200. And if 200 don't work, then try 3. And I can guarantee that there will be a break point after which something in your brain will say, no more negative emotions, because this madman is going to go to 400 with the Anabandas, and I'm going to die here. And then you are like the people from Somalia. You can't afford negative emotions anymore, because you are a madman, and you are ready to step on the gas pedal full on. Therefore, um, all these opportunities and many others are things of the daily life, and I want you to be encouraged at least to do yoga for having an amazing life. If you make it to nirvana or not, you know in your heart if you are ripe for that or not. If this is the life where you are going to give me 110% or not. Some of you already know that in this life you are doing 110% and that's it. Some of you haven't found out the answer to that yet. And some of you also know that, no, this is not the life where I'm prepared to give that 100% that Swami is asking for. But that doesn't mean you can't do anything. There is a difference between 100 and 0. There are many shades of gray. So you have to learn to apply yoga exactly for your status in life, where you are, 
what kind of yoga can you do? If I would hear that I'm teaching these things to a hundred people like this, and out of these a hundred people, 75 of you are having a good, healthy, happy, long life, I would be very happy. It means I taught you something useful. I gave you some tools. Yes, you didn't become Ramakrishna. It, there is very little probability that everybody in this room will become a Ramakrishna in this lifetime, in this century. It's not impossible, by the way. Because it all depends on the divine consciousness. If the Satya Yuga is coming in five years, and there will be a turmoil in the history of the earth, and if God needs a lot of Rumis and Moseses and like people, you're going to be hit by it even if you don't ask for it. So it's like, it's not impossible. But the probability, honestly speaking, is small. But at the same time, not everybody does yoga directly for the 100% thing. There are many people who do yoga simply because they, they say, I want to have a good life. I want to be spared of too much pain. I want to live a good life. And then when I live a good life, maybe I start thinking about some higher ideals of the human being. That's why this yoga in daily life, I hope it will, it will play its part to inspire you and to motivate you to really learn yoga, to really practice yoga, because it does a lot of things. Enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining us in this satsang. Namaste to all of you. If you have questions in the Q&A questions and answer sessions, you can bring up some of the questions, always, because I don't take questions during the satsangs. And I